All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, uh, and I, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it uh, uh, the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I want to also thank our sponsors for this show, uh, for making it economically viable for the, f- uh, for today's show. Our sponsors are Caden Resources, Canamex Resources, Go Gold Resources, and Uranium Energy Corporation. Want to encourage each of you to continue sending along your questions and comments to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail. We have a very busy day today, so let's get right to today's show. I've titled it, How Near is the U.S. to the USSR Like Economic Collapse? Today, uh, we have Dmitry Orlov, J. Michael Oliver, uh, Amir Adnani, Gene Epstein, and Curtis Ellis, all return guests on this show, and uh, the entire interview also that Greg Hunter uh, had with you on USA Watchdog with Dr. Paul Craig Roberts will be aired in the second hour of today's show at J. Taylor Media, that's J-A-Y Taylor Media dot com, uh, as a podcast, and that will be available immediately after the first hour of today's show. Recently, James Rickards opined on this show that he thought the timing toward a currency reset was accelerating. Indeed, it was just that uh, this last week that Paul Volcker called for a new revised Bretton Woods. And so the notion of a new monetary regime, the first since 1971, is not relegated only to off-the-wall gold bugs. Dmitry Orlov will be with me in about a half past the hour today to talk about the cracks that he sees in the United States that reminds him of the demise of the former USSR. I want to ask him for an update about what he sees in that regard, especially in light of the reborn Cold War-like tensions that seem to be emerging between Russia, the United States, and its NATO allies, and whether he thinks that we may play into a currency reset uh, the very kind of thing that Rickards is talking about if he sees uh, what's going on geopolitically as playing into that. Relating to geopolitics and the financial sleight of hand by the Fed in disguising treasury purchases through the back door from Belgium, well, that's what Dr. Paul Craig Roberts is suggesting, and he'll be talking to us about that uh, by way of that interview that I mentioned with Greg Hunter. Uh, and Curtis Ellis will update us on the efforts of the Obama administration to sneak through another, what I think is a very damaging so-called free trade bill known as TPP or Trans-Pacific Partnership. And uh, so he'll be 
with us. Both of those, both uh, Roberts and Ellis will be with us in the second hour of today's show at jtaylormedia.com. Gene Epstein will also join me to talk about uh, the horrifically flawed economic ideas of French economist Thomas Piketty. Um, and uh, as I say, Robert, uh, Roberts, Ellis, and Epstein will all be with me then in the second hour at jtaylormedia.com. With the tensions rising up between Russia and NATO and with the stockpile of uranium from the former Soviet Union depleted, what will that mean for uranium prices and the prospects of uranium producers in the United States? Well, Amir Adnani is going to be with me after our first commercial break today to talk about uh, the prospects for uranium and for his company, Uranium Energy Corporation. Uh, so we'll get his take on that. And. Um, well, it's getting back to the currency reset idea. Any new monetary regime is bound to have a profound effect on your wealth and investments as a whole. But, of course, talk is cheap. So what we really want to do, rather than trust the views of any one person, uh, is to listen to the language of the markets, which provides a superior wisdom that comes uh, from the collective wisdom of millions of market participants. Uh, to help us decipher the language of the markets, I am really pleased to have back with me right now Michael Oliver. Uh, through his firm, Momentum Structural Analysis, Michael has for over 20 years provided proprietary technical analysis to, to asset management institutions. And to learn more about momentum structural analysis uh, in its history, you need to go back to, or you need to go to uh, Oliver's. That's www.olivermsa.com. Mike is the author of the book The New Libertarianism: Anarcho-Capitalism which was just reviewed by the Mises Institute, and they described the book as, quote, much more than an ac academic thesis, but a distinguished addition to libertarian thought, end of quote. Well, it's really good to have Michael with me. Uh, welcome, Michael. It's good to have you back. Good to be here, Jay. Uh, on, on May 29th, you wrote a very important piece for your subscribers titled Four Connected Tectonic Plates. Those pla important plates are the S&P 500, Gold, the European stocks, uh, stock market in general, uh, and then the euro and U.S. dollar exchange rate. So I'd like to ask you to talk about those for a bit. Uh, tell us why those are so important, and um, well, starting perhaps with the S&P 500. Well, it's, it's not always the case that all markets are linked, but in this day and age when the central banks have made... Uh, more or less the 800-pound gorilla in the markets, uh, they do tend to link things up, either inversely or coincidentally. And some of, and these four markets tend to have a good correlation to one another, uh, not day-to-day -day or week-to-week, -week, but when you stand back and look at their monthly, month-to-month -month swings and so forth, in particular, I can see it in the momentum readings of these four markets. Um, S&P, of course, up, gold is now down. That relationship had been coincidental up through mid-2011 when the uh, central banks were doing their QEs and, and commodity assets were actually rising more than stocks. But that broke down decisively in mid-2011. Gold peaked in August, September of 2011. Most commodities also peaked then. And they divorced themselves from stocks. And now gold is clearly, in my momentum work anyway, uh, technically opposite stocks, uh, wave by wave, almost month by month. Therefore, we have S&P in, in a bull trend, a very old one. We have, now have gold in a downtrend, at least about three years old now. And they're both at about the same juncture point, where it looks to me like gold could be either one has made its bottom, that would be the dual lows at 1180, which occurred last year, or it has one more spike to go. In other words, blow those lows out, 
uh, generate a highly likely uh, spike bottom that does not sustain on the downside and then flip back up. I'm open to the prospect that it goes either way, but I do think gold is either bottomed or is close to a bottom time-wise. Um, and as far as price goes, I think a low would probably be in the low 1100s, so not dramatically below the 1180 low, should we decide to go that way. Mm -hmm. S&P is doing essentially the same thing in reverse. It has continued to make new erosional highs this year. Each month it will tickle out the high of the prior month and then fall back and then go a little bit more. But uh, on its momentum charts, it's identical to gold, but upside-down version of it. It looks like the S&P is either about to peter out in terms of its annual momentum and therefore put in a top. At the same time, gold is trying to develop its bottom. So mm -hmm. those two are inverse. Now, obviously, the European stocks, and I look at the DAX index primarily, which is equivalent to the S&P 500 of Europe. It is the stalwart index of Europe. But I also look at the Euro Stocks 50 index, which mm -hmm. is 50% of the European stock market capitalization. And I've run numbers on it, and it is obviously correlated positively to the S&P. It's not as strong as the S&P by any measure, but it is in the same directional movement. Um, it has numbers that are about 2% below its current price. It is seen at the end of this month, on a monthly closing basis, the way I measure it, uh, it's turned down. The S&P's numbers, uh, just to make a note if you want to, uh, mm -hmm. it's now in the 1920s. If you get down to 1863, the end of this month, and the number will be adjusted sharply up next month. That is a monthly close that indicates to me a top is in place. Mm -hmm. That's about 3% below the market. Uh, so that we're talking about numbers that aren't far away, so a sneeze by these two equity markets will, in my view, with my work, indicate top in place. Now we go to the 4X markets and mm -hmm. the euro and the dollar index. You've got to remember that the dollar index, which is one of the ways we uh, most traders measure the dollar, is a basket of exchange-weighted uh, exchange currencies. The euro is about 57% of the dollar index. So what the yen does, what the British pound does, the Swiss franc really don't matter too much. It's what the euro does in terms of causing the dollar index to go up or down. Mm -hmm. The euro has been positively, very much so, correlated to the S&P and to the developed stock market indexes for the last several years. Mm -hmm. uh, the euro just made a recent new high, not a new high all time, but for the last few years. At the same time, within days of when the S&P made its size. Uh, the euro right now is in the 136 area, and frankly, if you close out this month at 135.60, which is just barely below recent lows, that indicates to me top in place in the euro. Mm -hmm. If you go back and study its uh, long-term momentum, if that occurs, uh, is a good likelihood that the S&P will be uh, one monthly bar away from doing the same. Mm -hmm. uh, so what I see are these four different market arenas, each which can be measured on its own, but they all link so well, either inversely or coincidentally, that they're a package. Uh, and therefore, I think if you were on a desert island and you had some of my work in front of you and you had only monthly closing data to operate on, you would be able to know when the S&P is topped, when the dollar is turning up. Now, I know this is uh, an affront to read to a lot of gold bulls who think that the dollar must be down for gold to go up. Uh, that is a mistaken notion, in my opinion. Gold is an anti-fiat currency, a money. It's against all fiat currencies, not just the dollar. The dollar is now matched by other equally uh, liquefied currencies like the euro and the yen. 
So it's, it's, when, if the dollar goes up, it doesn't indicate necessarily any great fundamental strength in the U.S. or in the integrity of the currency. It just means it's better than the others. Yeah. A relative that, statement, and people need to realize that. Sure. Uh, but, uh, so I see a dollar potential up as being negative to S&P. Uh, the European stocks and U.S. stocks are linked, and gold is inverse. So these four all together, my suspicion is they'll all turn whenever they turn, within a month or so of each other. And they'll give, in effect, a chorus of asset direction change of a long-term nature. And okay. it looks to me like we're near that point. <laughs> okay, Michael, and that's, that leads me to my question. We just have a couple of minutes left, but okay. why do you think this, in other words, the, your chart, your most recent piece shows sideways action, essentially a sideways top for, for the S&P, and it shows a sort of a sideways bottom or a base for gold. Mm-hmm. Why do you think this, and it's gone on for about a year, why do you think it can't go on much longer? Well, the, the gold market, if you look at annual momentum, let's just take gold as the inverse of the S&P. If I plunge out the price lows, uh, I go to other time scales of my measurement, which I use quarterly momentum and monthly, not just the annual. And they clearly tell me that if I punch out those lows in gold, it is probably an exhaustion spike because none of the other momentum indicators will confirm a new low in gold. Mm-hmm. The gold would have to go off the page to achieve a confirmed weak low, in other words, one that is validated by weak momentum readings. Instead, now, if I blow out those lows, uh, if I do, and I'm not at all sure that's going to happen, I think you get about Uh two weeks uh, for gold in the S&P to power up on the S&P up into the 1950s, and for gold to get down around that 1200 mark, uh, which is the low 50-point reading on the gold bear so far, and right now we're in the 1240s and quietly steady. Uh, I'm open to the possibility we don't ventilate the gold lows and we don't mm-hmm. ventilate the S&P on the upside. Instead, mm-hmm. they both wither effectively mm-hmm. for the next week or two, just short of levels that would indicate some more, and you get a quiet top as mm-hmm. opposed to a violent, uh, exciting one, you know, a dramatic low in gold, for example. Uh, instead, you just simply make a higher low here in the 1240s. Okay. And, and All right, possible. well, but I, I mean, so... so- <laughs> So, so just to summarize here, because we're just about out of time, okay. if I understand you properly, what you're saying is it's highly likely we're going to see a turn downward in U.S. equities and in European equities. It's highly likely we're going to see an uptick or a, a turn upward in the U.S. dollar relative to the euro. And it's highly likely that we're going to see a turn up in gold after a possible another plunge down, but a brief plunge down. Uh, and uh, and that and that these markets are so interrelated that when one goes, the rest are likely to turn as well. I, I think they'll all pretty much go as a chorus, and I think that yeah. will tend to validate where, whatever you see in one. If you see it in the other, and the other, and the other, uh, it's a chorus, and it's a true true statement. Well, you can, you can act I on think, the information. Uh, I, uh, I, it's an excellent uh, it's an excellent summary that I'm very privileged to have seen. I want to thank you very much, Michael, for coming on the show. And again, for our listeners, it's OliverMSA.com uh, for more information. And Michael does provide a service to uh, to institutional clients primarily and, and wealthy individuals. So it's not it's not a retail service. But uh, Michael, very happy that you could come on and explain this stuff to us. I know those of us on this show are looking very very carefully at gold because we have a lot invested in gold in one way or gold shares or gold stocks. And we don't have time to ask you today about gold shares, but we might like to have you come back on sometime in the near future to discuss to. that as well. Be happy to. Good. 
Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much. Well, that's all the time we have with Michael. But coming up next, Amir Adnani, the CEO of Uranium Energy, will be with me. And I uh, want to talk to him uh, about where he sees the uh, uranium prices going in light of the difficulties that we're now experiencing with the Soviet Union, or with, I should say, with Russia. Uh, and then uh, Dmitry Orlov will be here to also talk about Russia and uh, some of the parallels he sees between what's going on in the United States and what went on in Russia during the time of that country, or the USSR, I should say, in the time of that uh, empire's collapse. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Amir Adnani. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Canamex Resources has commenced a 10,000-meter drill program on its flagship Bruner Gold Project in Nevada. This follows a successful 2013 field season, which included a 58-meter intercept of 5.2 grams per ton gold. NYSE market-listed Gold Resource Corporation just completed a $2 million strategic investment in Canamex. And NYSE-listed Hecla Mining Company also is a strategic investor. Canamex Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol CSQ and on the OTCQX under symbol CNMXF. Go Gold Resources, considered a buy by several well-known analysts, is soon to be Mexico's newest gold and silver producer. With two impressive developments, Go Gold's Paral Tailings Project, with first pour anticipated in May, is expected to produce 1.8 million ounces of silver equivalent per year, generating a steady 12-year cash flow. Santa Gertrudis, a past-producing gold mine, could potentially be put back into production by mid-2015, advancing quickly and led by a team of experienced mine builders. Go Gold is one to watch. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Amir Adnani. He's the CEO of Uranium Energy Corporation. Uranium Energy trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol UEC. There's approximately 90 million shares outstanding, and the stock closed this past Friday at a price of $1.75. Welcome, Amir, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thanks for having me back, Jay. Very good to have you. You're always, uh, no grass grows under your feet, as they say. You're always on the move. Lots of good things happening at Uranium Energy. And how many pounds of uranium are you expecting to produce this year, Amir? Well, Jerry, I mean, over the last um, six, seven months, we've seen um, 
further delays uh, with the reactor restart situation in Japan, uh-huh. uh, which has continued to really weigh on the spot uranium prices. And uh-huh. so spot uranium prices, as you're aware, are now in the basically a range of about 28 to $29 per pound, which is quite a low price. It's low in the sense that it's below the industry average uh, cost of production. So you're going to see more uh, mining operations uh, shut down. And we've mm-hmm. seen a number of these types of news um, over the last uh, little while uh, from uh, the bigger operations that are putting projects in care and maintenance. Also, the price is well below uh, what a number of analysts have reported as being the projected incentive price of around $80 per pound, wow. which is the incentive price to see new mines uh, get developed, some of the larger scale mines. So basically, uh, what we've been cognizant of is that in this kind of environment, uh, it's good to have uh, a more uh, conservative uh, uh, corporate posture. We have uh, gone and sort of started a number of initiatives in terms of making sure that we uh, remain with a strong balance sheet and have financial flexibility. So what we've really done is taken advantage of our unhedged position, the fact that we are not uh, hedged with any fixed-price contracts is an advantage because we can afford to basically uh, slow operations down, even Mm -hmm. though we're growing our asset base uh, through some of the acquisitions that we've announced recently. Uh, The property-based asset base uh, is, in fact, growing, which is for our future growth, and when uh, improvements in uranium prices inevitably come, we'll have the right asset base for that. But for the time being, we've made sure that we've cut a lot of our cost structures, maintain a, a very low, a, a low cost base for operations, maintain a strong balance sheet, uh, defer any capital expenditures uh, into the future for when uranium prices recover. And even if we have uh, some interest in some of our non-core assets, you got to remember mm-hmm. we have a very deep project portfolio, not just in Texas, but in Arizona, Colorado, and in South America and Paraguay, mm-hmm. we feel that even if we divest of a non-core asset and raise additional cash, this could be a good move at a time like this when prices are down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are all the various things that we're doing, uh, Jay, to make mm-hmm. sure that the company is just very well positioned to work through this downturn period in uranium prices. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I want to get to the uranium price uh, and, and a little, you know, some of the factors that that work in and play into that. You you mentioned the uh, the Japanese situation, but before we get to that, you mentioned eighty dollars, or I think you said eighty dollars is what the analysts are suggesting uh, is necessary to bring on new mining projects. Probably we're talking about hard rock uh, uranium projects, right? Correct. And so I think our listeners need to realize that you are in the process of uh, your your production comes from low-cost, low-cap cost, environmentally friendly uh, in situ recovery uh, process, right? And that's a lot lower cost. The operating costs are a lot lower than for hard rock mining, both capital and operating cost, right? So in situ recovery or ISR mining that we're focused on is, definitely on the lower end of the cost curve and in the lowest quartile of cost for developing uranium mines and even the operating cost uh, to produce uranium. And this is what our method of mining in South Texas, where we have our production hub and spoke strategy, is currently employing. Mm-hmm. But you are continuing to produce even with these lower prices, and, and what do you expect your, your cash costs are now, Amir? Well, Jay, uh, based on what we had reported, uh, our last reported um, uh, sales were uh, for the period ending October 31st of last year, 2013. 
And that was the last quarter we actually uh, uh, completed or made sales in the spot market because with uh, the drop in the spot uranium price, we've really held back on um, on basically making sales, building an inventory right now. Okay. Uh, we've reduced the pace of operations uh, so that um, we can uh, reduce costs, but we're still uh, producing to the extent that we can cover some of our operating costs and keep our core personnel. Mm-hmm. But as of the numbers we reported, I mean, the the cumulative numbers, the average um, uh, cash cost for us uh, since start of production through to end of October of last year came in at around $22 per pound, mm-hmm. which is excluding uh, royalties. We pay typically 10% royalty to our mineral owners based on the uranium sale price mm-hmm. that we experience only at the time of sale. Mm-hmm. Be- beyond that, there are no other mineral or, let's say, uh, corporate taxes or uh, uh, royalties to the state of Texas. So your your real true tax or royalty is uh, what we pay to the mineral owner. Mm-hmm. So you can see even um, even with the cash cost and uh, excluding royalties of twenty two dollars per pound, which is which was based on our cost of goods sold. That's the average realized cash cost since inception of production in early two thousand eleven through to the end of last year. Uh, that's a very competitive cash cost number to. Yeah. Uh, to be uh, to be looking at to be realizing, especially for a startup operation, a project that's just up and running. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I really think that that shows the proof of concept that uranium energy has, the proof of concept in uh, in having shown that we are uh, truly an operator. We can operate with the best of them, uh, and we can definitely deliver competitive results with the production that we had. But we're being sensible about the current environment and uh, really looking at. The fact that it's better to preserve uh, the resources that we have available to be produced uh, to realize that production when uranium prices uh, do recover. And we do, in fact, expect the recovery to take place in 2014, hopefully on the back of these reactor restarts in Japan. Right now, a number of individuals, analysts, market observers that you, you know we follow or listen to a lot of the Japanese trading houses, they're still signaling that there could be possibility for two to five reactor restarts mm-hmm. in the balance of this year. And that could be the much-needed catalyst that the sector needs as a positive boost, which could also really uh, help with the price as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if you're uh, going, getting back to the economics of your current uh, sort of low level of production uh, that you've just explained the reasons for, that you'd be looking at still at a at a positive operating cash flow, direct operating cash flow. You know, maybe, maybe not sufficient to cover all your overhead, but certainly uh, the direct operating costs would be less than the prices of twenty eight to twenty nine dollars. So you're still making a positive margin on your operation. Is that right, Amir? Yeah, right, based on the based on the uh, cash cost, you mean? Sure. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, so uh, there's the Japanese situation. I I thought that the uranium that was uh, but supplying the world to a great extent had come from uh, the old, uh, you know, the, the weapons from the Soviet Union that were that were uh, taken apart, and the, the uranium was sold out into the markets. Is that still is that program still in place, or is that about over with? That program is over with now. It's, it was it ended at the end uh, at the uh, basically at the end of 2013. That program expired and. Uh, it, it was a significant chunk of supply into the uh, market in terms of secondary supply. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, we're just not seeing the, the, the effect of it in terms of supply pressures because of the Japanese reactors that are offline. Okay. 
All right. Uh, so, I mean, it's still up in the air in terms of whether the Japanese reactors will be turned back on or not. I mean, Japan has to have energy from some source, right? That's the issue. And and um, y- 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 so it's very expensive, the, the importing the, uh, the hydrocarbons that they're in- importing now. There's major uh, challenges over there. I mean, from an energy point of view, sure. nuclear power was providing a third of uh, electricity in Japan. Now that's all been replaced with uh, uh, fossil fuels, which are far more expensive. Uh, and uh, already there's uh, there are reports and articles talking about uh, Japan's uh, carbon footprint uh, uh, also growing, uh, which is a concern uh, from a climate change or just from a standpoint of uh, air quality point of view, which is a huge issue in uh, China. Obviously, it's front-page news over there, air quality issue. It's one of the big reasons why. Uh, they're very focused on uh, developing a, a major nuclear program in China. But in Japan, uh, there have been uh, just consecutive quarters of the rising trade deficit, rising energy prices. Uh, and uh, it, uh, it it doesn't seem to be a very sustainable picture to rely on these expensive fossil fuel imports to replace nuclear power. But it's definitely taking... Um, to some extent, longer than a lot of people expected, Jay, to see nuclear power come back online in Japan. So I mm-hmm. think the, the, the lesson learned for everyone in here, and what we've seen the Japanese government reiterate as well, is that nuclear has to be in the energy mix for Japan moving forward. Yeah. But the velocity at which these reactor restarts uh, are happening uh, is probably slower than what we would have expected looking back a couple of years ago or even a year ago. But we're starting to finally reach some important critical milestones with regulatory approvals or local government approvals, applications that are not very advanced through, uh, through the review process for restart. That's giving uh, that's giving the market confidence that uh, maybe, um, you know, like I said, we'll see some positive news uh, with on this topic in the balance of this year. Uh, what price of uranium do you think you need, Amir, to start ramping up to full capacity? What would you be looking for to really get moving forward more rapidly again? There's not a magic number in mind uh, or that has been determined by the company, uh, Jay. I mean, I think uh, really want to first fundamentally see the price uh, start to stage some sustainable uh, rallies or recoveries over a couple of quarters uh, start to see some fundamentally some fundamental improvements on the demand side with uh, the Japanese reactor restarts and, um, and and really see how as these things unfold um, where the right um, uh, balancing act is in terms of the, the right expectations on price but also uh, looking at our business and seeing uh, at what you know what, what 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 becomes sort of the happy medium to make decisions about uh, more aggressive production growth plans. Mm-hmm. Um, you have recently made an acquisition. Talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, the acquisition is of a project called the Longhorn Project, Longhorn ISR project, and uh, this is part of our South Texas hub and spoke strategy. The project is uh, just over 40 miles south of our Hobson processing plant, which is the hub in our hub and spoke. Mm-hmm. And Longhorn is a project that is a classic example of how Uranium Energy Corp can utilize uh, the very uh, large amounts of historic data that we have um, for previous work that has been done in South Texas for uranium exploration and mining. Um, we have decades of work at our disposal in terms of drilling logs, engineering reports, maps that we can utilize to identify targets or projects that were previously explored. Longhorn Project uh, 
It's situated in an area in Libel County where this has been a big uranium-producing uh, county in South Texas, Jay. 30 million pounds have historically been produced uh, in Live Oak County. Mm-hmm. Uh, 13 million pounds using the ISR method just within the immediate, immediate vicinity of our project by companies like U.S. Steel. Mm-hmm. And just on the areas that we've uh, leased now on the long-term project that we're calling, there are about 500 historic drill holes at our disposal, and uh, we have a very good understanding of how to use this historic information to fast-track the project. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the key permits for ISR mining is what is called an aquifer exemption, which can take a great deal of money and time to, to, to get. And this is what we have at our Palangana project and mm. our Goliath project. And this project already has that. Due to oh. the historic uh, t- work that was done here, that permit was already uh, uh, granted, the aquifer exemption. And so it's a, very, uh, it's a very nice package in the sense that you've got the advantage with the permit in hand. You've got the 500 holes that gives us a very good understanding of the, you know where the resources are and how you know gives you the ability to fast track uh, moving this project uh, up the development curve and having it become plugged into our hub and spoke model. And again, as we look at uh, the anticipation of higher uranium prices, you can see a very scalable platform that we have in place in South Texas now. You've got our Palangana project, which is already uh, built and up and running. You have our Goliath project, which is uh, fully permitted, and we've already ordered all the long lead items for the project and have received all the long, uh, long lead items. We've submitted for production applications at our third project, Brook Hollow, and now this new project, Longhorn, mm-hmm. uh, not to mention two other projects, projects five and six, Salvo and Nichols. Mm-hmm. So very scalable platform. And, uh, you know, we've, I think, demonstrated that we're executing in South Texas. We're moving these projects forward, and they're now at various stages of exploration, development, pre-production, and production. Uh, and, um, Jay, we're doing all of this while uranium prices are, you know, at a nine-year yeah, low. So right. you see the company is clearly not sitting around just uh, hoping it, things improve. We're, 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 we're making progress, and the intrinsic value of Uranium Energy Corp today is greater as a result of the fact that there are more assets, they're more advanced from a permitting point of view mm-hmm. in Texas and outside of Texas. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in this environment, you don't get much joy from the markets, uh, but that doesn't stop you from building the company so that when the market turns around, people that own the stock at these levels or that enter the stock at $1.75 or somewhere in that range should do very, very well. Uh, how, how many pounds of uranium would you have in reserves or resource categories now? Our 43-101 resources in various categories that um, I'll uh, refer to your listeners to look at our website yeah. for the exact okay. breakdown of those are approximately uh, 16 million pounds uh, in various categories. And uh, again, it's all broken down on our website uh, for the exact details. Uh, and then uh, there are additional uh, resources uh, in uh, Arizona, the largest one being our Anderson project with 29 million pounds. Again, for the details, uh, uh, please refer to the website. Uh, in uh, Paraguay, our UT project is 11 million pounds, uh, 43-101. Uh, the Slick Rock project in Colorado, we uh, recently saw, uh, uh, issued a preliminary economic assessment showing uh, 11 million pounds of uranium with a very strong vanadium byproduct and also uh, demonstrating uh, some good economics on the project as well where uh, you can see uh, these are not just exploration projects we hold outside of Texas. These are very advanced projects. And at higher uranium prices, the company really has multiple um, multiple sort of fronts uh, to to develop and look at um, uh, a, a very good 
uh, development pipeline. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, it's uh, times like these that really smart investors, the Rick Rules of this world, the Doug Casey's, those guys are licking their chops, looking at the potential uh, studying companies that really have the management. And you have a great management team. Amir, you always attract good talent. Um, I, I like to say because I think you know how to delegate and how to let people free to, to use their skills. And uh, you've done a remarkable job uh, with this company as well as uh, Brazil Resources and um, is uh, just really uh, want to tell our, let our listeners know that I have a very high regard for for what you've done. Uh, anything else you'd like to add before we conclude our discussion today on on uranium energy? No, I think it's um, it's been great to have the opportunity over the years to uh, speak with you and update your uh, subscribers on the ongoing progress with both uranium energy and and the sector. There's no doubt that this has been. Uh, a challenging uh, time for the uranium and nuclear power industries uh, the three years post uh, the Fukushima accident. But um, again, when you look at the fact that there are 70 reactors under construction right now, uh, 90 new reactors are expected to come online uh, on top of the uh, 400 and so that we currently have already in the world connected to the grid. Uh, over the next eight years, there's expected to be 90 more added on top of that. Mm. There's, there's, there's real growth taking place in nuclear power. I think that's something that needs to be recognized that, yes, it's, you know, these are tough times. The uranium prices are down and low, but the, the growth in nuclear power worldwide is evident and moving ahead, and it's really not ifs and buts. It's really happening. And so there's great, really, reason to, to believe that uh, with some fundamental improvements in Japan with the reactor restart situation, we can see the macro picture improve and prices to uh, also recover from where they are. And, Jay, just companies like UEC are just uh, not that many in the world. In terms no. of companies that have uh, a licensed facility, uh, uh, other licensed uh, mines and operations, a technical team that has demonstrated the ability to deliver uh, and operate and produce uh, a diversified asset base in a number of different jurisdictions. This is uh, really, a, I think, what makes UEC stand out. I think it's what's allowed us to attract individuals like uh, former U.S. Energy Secretary Spencer Abraham, investors like Rick Rule, Lee Ka-Sheng, the richest man in Asia who, you know, you, you look at these names, these are really, uh, in my opinion, strong names and, and individuals to, to, to for UEC as a small cap company to show it's been able to attract. And there just aren't too many uranium producers in the world. No. And there just aren't too many unhedged uranium producers in the world. Oh, you know, the fact that our position is 100% unhedged is just unparalleled. Every yeah. other uranium producer has fixed price contracts in place. And I think if you know, if you believe in the upside potential of the uranium industry and nuclear power, UEC's best position to take advantage of that. And for the time being, we've taken all the necessary actions to make sure we can uh, not only survive during this downturn, but also still continue to advance our business during this downturn. Yeah, well, indeed, you certainly are, are doing that, Amir. I want to thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing uh, your thoughts about your company and, and giving us an update. It's greatly appreciated. Look thank forward you to, very much, Jay. Look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. All right, well, folks, don't go away because coming up next, Dmitry Orlov, he is talking about how the United States, unfortunately, seems to be following many of the same footsteps that the Soviet Union followed, and we're going to get his take on, on what uh, the current conflicts between Russia and the United States might mean for uh, the economy and perhaps we'll ask him about uh, what his views are on the uranium price as well so stick around and listen to what Dmitry Orlov has to say we'll be right back
Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Canamex Resources has commenced a 10,000-meter drill program on its flagship Bruner Gold Project in Nevada. This follows a successful 2013 field season, which included a 58-meter intercept of 5.2 grams per ton gold. NYSE Market Listed Gold Resource Corporation just completed a $2 million strategic investment in Canamex. And NYSE Listed Hecla Mining Company also is a strategic investor. Canamex Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol CSQ and on the OTCQX under symbol CNMXF. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dmitry Orloff. Uh, Dmitry was born and grew up in Leningrad, but he's lived in the United States since the mid-1970s. He was an eyewitness to the Soviet collapse over several extended visits to his Russian homeland between the late 80s and the mid-1990s. He is a, a, an engineer who has contributed to fields as diverse as high-energy physics and Internet security as well as a leading peak oil theorist. He is uh, the author of Reinventing Collapse, The Soviet Example, and American Prospects, and a number of other books, too, that may be, I think, in an electronic format. I have not had the privilege yet of reading them. I look forward to doing so because Dimitri brings with him a lot of great insights that I think are not all that common. So uh, really good to have you back. I'm glad you could join me today, Dimitri. Great to be with you, Jay. It's really good to have you. Uh, it's been more than a year since we last spoke. The U.S. equity markets have hit new highs. The United States government is growing bigger and bigger all the time. The American military and its NATO allies are sending military personnel, CIA, and NGOs into more and more countries, supposedly to make the world safer for democracy. A couple of weeks back, I was invited uh, to meet my friend Axel Merck, who was uh, ringing the bell at the New York Stock Exchange uh, for a new listing that he has of a gold ETF that allows supposedly allows holders to take possession, physical possession of the gold. And as I walked around Wall Street back in those days, I used to work down there many years ago, and then up into the midtown Manhattan, I was just wondering if I must be just a little bit crazy to worry about anything like a collapse in the U.S. economy. I talk about it frequently on this show. You know, the tall, luxurious buildings are still there. People walking around with lots of money, wealthy people all over the place in New York City. So I said to myself, Taylor, how can you possibly be worrying about America having a severe problem 
or about any kind of a collapse that you're, uh, you've, you've talked to Dmitry Orloff about in the past, are you crazy? Because everything seems to be going pretty well, at least here in New York City. So I would like to ask you if you can review the evidence that you've talked about previously on this show, and that is to do uh, with the process of the stages of collapse, the five stages of collapse uh, that you noticed in the Soviet Union. And as you mentioned before, uh, when you were on this show, that you see uh, the parallels of that happening in the United States. So could you review perhaps this, those stages of collapse and sort of update us on where you think the United States is now, unfortunately, in that, uh, in that process? Uh, sure. Uh, New York is uh, probably the, ro- the wrong place to go if you want to observe collapse because uh, New York is one of those places that sucks the wealth out mm-hmm. of the rest of the country and concentrates it in the hands of fewer and fewer people. Mm-hmm. And, and the trend is unmistakable because if, if you look at statistics like labor participation rate, if you look at the, the, the number of college graduates without a job, um, things like that, they, they point to a completely, in a completely different direction. Mm-hmm. And, and also overall, the, the economy in the United States has, has stopped growing um, at some point, and when that growth will resume is unknown, possibly never. And uh, that would point in the direction of uh, all of this debt that has been accumulated in expectation of resumption of growth will become unrepayable, which will bring on financial collapse. So we're, we're really looking at the, the stages of collapse, financial collapse, um, and, and then uh, commercial collapse will follow because the exports will be cut off. The result of financial collapse is disruption of trade. And, and the U.S. is absolutely dependent on imports, especially energy imports. And then political collapse will follow thereafter because the country at that point will be an open rebellion. Um, the other stages of collapse that I've outlined have already more or less run their course, which is social and cultural collapse. Uh, in terms of uh, social collapse, this is a very, very alienated society. People are very much at odds with each other. They don't really deal with each other face-to-face very much. Everything is mediated through commerce and, and, and politics and, and uh, uh, various types of official organizations. People are very uncomfortable trusting each other. There isn't very much trust. And in terms of cultural collapse, uh, we, we see very, very weak families um, and, and high divorce rates and, and a lot of alienation within the families themselves. So the family is not really an institution that a lot of Americans can fall back on already. That's really what, where we stand. Uh, that, mm-hmm. That's how I see it. Well, Dimitri, it doesn't necessarily have to go in the order then that you've named those, uh, those stages. Uh, it seems as though we had the start of a very severe financial collapse that was, uh, the establishment gained control of. Do you see that as having another leg to fall? Well, uh, I think it was basically, uh, you know, drawing the curtains and pretending that the, the train is moving by rocking it back and forth uh-huh. as opposed to actually getting it moving again. Uh-huh. Um, printing money is not really a way to run an economy. A government that borrows a third of what it spends is not really a solvent government. This is just a delay tactic. Now, the Soviet Union collapsed as soon as it ran out of money because it it was dependent on imports, but it couldn't print money with which to buy imports. It had Mm -hmm. to borrow that money from, from other countries, the United States especially. The United States is in a privileged position where it can actually print money and then use that money to buy stuff. But that, yeah, is, I, that is rapidly running its course. 
Yeah, I, I would I would think that's true, and it's a topic that we've talked about on this show frequently uh, with various people, uh, James Rickards being one of several, uh, and his sense is that we're probably coming very close to a currency reset of some kind. Uh, but before we get into some of those uh, those issues, I want to ask you, you mentioned energy, and I know I can hear people on this show saying, yes, but we've got this fracking revolution. You don't buy that, do you? Well, the fracking revolution is over. Uh, the, the shale gas reserves have been downgraded by a 96% recently. Yeah, that was, was in California, I believe. That was in California, I believe, wasn't it? I, I didn't yes. make much. Yeah, I did hear that, but it didn't seem to make much uh, in the way of CNBC. Well, of course, they don't talk about things that don't, don't jive with the, the, uh, the picture that they're trying to, to paint. You know, whenever something doesn't look right, they stop talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so we've got uh, okay. So we've got these stages of collapse, and uh, they don't necessarily have to fall in that order. Uh, so there's going to be there's going to be. I mean, we've got commerce yet. I don't have any problem getting my groceries. I don't have any problem getting gasoline at the uh, at the at the local filling station here. Uh, what's got to happen for the wheels to fall off this wagon? Well, uh, actually, a lot of people are, are having. Uh, quite a bit of trouble obtaining things where they mm-hmm. live. There are food deserts in, in many parts where people who uh, don't have the luxury of jumping into their car and driving long distances to buy groceries mm-hmm. are for, forced to, to uh, shop at convenience stores. And, mm-hmm. uh, as a result, they eat very unhealthy food. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that's, that's fairly prevalent here. Uh, the retail chain in, in, in the United States, very overbuilt and now ra- in rapid collapse. So more mm-hmm. and more stores are closing every month, and that that is a trend that's going to run its course over a long period of time. You've uh, you've stated previously that the Soviet Union, the people there, were in much better shape to handle the the the, uh, the downturn, the collapse, than we are. Could you explain why that's ca- why that's the case? Uh, yes, basically, their living arrangement was resilient in many many ways. For instance, they didn't depend on pri- the private automobile, um, so. Shortages of gasoline didn't impact them because there was public transportation and it continued to run. Um, they didn't. Uh, they didn't depend on on the the very fragile just-in-time delivery food chain that they have in the United States, where supermarkets have uh, at most three days worth of uh, inventory on hand. Instead, there were local food uh, stockpiles in all of these different places. Plus, people grew a lot of their own food. There were it was a, a kitchen garden economy that's, that that always existed, but mm-hmm. it became much more important. Um, people didn't have to pay rent or a mortgage because uh, these were notional. The the uh, all of the real estate was owned by the government and mm-hmm. made available to the people. And and uh, when when the Soviet Union collapsed, people ended up owning whatever wherever they happened to be living, free and clear. So they, they suddenly became um, property owners, uh, mm-hmm. just the opposite of the trend in, in this country where people are superficially owners, but a lot of them are underwater and a lot of their ownership depends on them being able to pay mortgage and tax. And that, that's not guaranteed by any means. Um, so all of those things made, made Russians very resilient in the face of collapse. They pretty much just went on. The, the, the times were hard, but they were survivable. But whereas in the United States, none of, none of the, uh, the things that people depend on, the, the life support system that they depend on, is actually resilient. 
You mentioned that you think the uh, the days are numbered in which the United States will be able to continue printing endless amounts of dollars uh, to buy the world's goods. And I have to ask you, in light of what's going on in the Ukraine, uh, the tensions that are arising there, the United States pushing uh, its NATO, the limits of NATO in towards uh, Russia, uh, I think justifiably Russia being concerned about the loss of its sovereignty. Um, do, you, do you see what's going on and, and also some of the things that are changing with China uh, taking in huge amounts of gold reportedly, uh, markets uh, that would allow China and Russia to trade in oil and other goods and services, India is included in that, Iran, some of the countries that are, uh, that are seemingly most hostile to the United States or you might say the United States most hostile to them perhaps looking at it from the other side. Do you see all of the, these sort of emerging things as part of the big picture here? Uh, yes. Well, the, the big shift is that basically Russia has realized that uh, it, there's no, nothing to be gained from, from having uh, good relations with the United States uh-huh. and a lot to be lost. Uh-huh. And, and Russia is no longer afraid of the United States because mm-hmm. Russia, along with other countries, basically sees the United States as a paper tiger uh, that mm-hmm. wastes all of this money on the military yet cannot prevail in any conflict, not in Iraq, not in Afghanistan, not even in Somalia. So basically this is a very expensive uh, way for the United States to defeat itself and other countries have no need to interfere with it. Now what happened in Ukraine is, is very, very unfortunate because the United States and you know, the CIA basically there uh, perpetuated a neo-Nazi coup and installed mm-hmm. this neo-Nazi regime in Kiev which is now doing the things that caused the West to impose a no-fly zone on Libya. Yeah. Um, but, of course, there are double standards. So, yeah. uh, you know, the United States was on, on, on one side of the conflict in Libya, but it's on the other side of the conflict in Ukraine, and that makes all the difference. Yeah. So for Gaddafi, it was illegal to attack civilians, but for, for, the, uh, for the freaks in Kiev, the junta in, in Kiev, shelling civilians is just fine. Not yeah. a problem. Yeah. Um, now, Russia is taking a very measured stand on it. Uh, basically, they, they have some very high tolerance for watching, um, watching Ukraine bleed. And they're biding their time because, uh, really, Ukraine in its current state is, is not something that co- can continue as a country. It, mm-hmm. In fact, it's, it's defunct as a country already. And, and the longer it goes on, the worse the situation there becomes for, for, the, for the junta. And, and so they're, they're basically just going to wait. Um, that's, that, that's, that's their stance. Uh, but but the, the United States is becoming quite hysterical because the longer this goes on, uh, the more the Europeans realize that what the United States, States is doing is very destructive to Western Europe. And people in Western Europe are starting to realize that the United States is no longer their friend as well. So the, the effort to isolate Russia will end up isolating the United States. Well, it, it seems to me that, uh, that that's sort of the conclusion that I've uh, run into along with we have Daniel um, D- uh, McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity frequently on this show, and he, and he provides a much different picture than what we're getting, much along the same lines that you're talking about. I have to ask you, we only got a couple of minutes left here yet. The time has gone so fast, but you mentioned on your website uh, that I hope people will go to 
uh, and it is, um, refresh my memory here, your website so people can go to, it is cluborloff.blogspot.com, uh, I believe. Is that it? Yes. And that's where I, I would urge people to go there to uh, catch up with, uh, with the uh, ideas and the, the many things that Dimitri offers there. But Dimitri, with a couple of minutes we have left here, you raised some questions on the front page there that questions that we need to ask. The first one was, how can we communicate the reality of collapse to family and friends in ways that are constructive rather than destructive and find helpful ways to reflect our endarkenment in our everyday behavior? So maybe if we've got time, you could answer that question at least. That, That to me is very important because on this show, we talk a lot about the problems ahead. And people recoil. I mean, just as I said, I'm walking around Manhattan. I don't see any problem. What are you talking about, Taylor? Are you crazy? Things aren't so bad. But they are. We know that there are some very, very severe problems that are going to result in very, very difficult times. So maybe you could just touch on that first question that you raised. Well, nobody knows the answer to this question, which is why I'm asking it. Everybody wants to know the answer, but nobody has one. But my feeling is, and, and I, I, I'll, I will spend the next year working this out because I do want to come up with a good recommendation for people to follow, but my feeling is you can't get people to move away from something they're used to, no matter what you tell them. And intellectually, they'll understand, but emotionally, the reaction will be just the wrong reaction. Mm-hmm. But you can get people to move towards something they like. They, they, you can get them to move towards uh, something that that makes them feel secure, gives them a sense of belonging, uh, gives them some sense of optimism in the future, some vision that they can embrace. And that is really our challenge. Not to paint a dark picture of the future, but to paint a picture of the future that is actually realistic and survivable and makes people feel better about where they're going. All right. I thank you very much for that, Dimitri. We're out of time. I think that's a good way to end it. I look forward to having you back again. And maybe when you have an answer to that and some of the other questions you raised, thank you very much for being with us again uh, today. And I look forward to talking to you in the near future. Thank you, Jay. Uh, unfortunately, as I say, that's all the time we've got, but uh, the show does go on at jtaylormedia.com. Simply go there, hit the podcast button, and there you'll hear uh, Gene Epstein, Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, and uh, Curtis Ellis uh, on the TPP, Gene Epstein uh, on uh, the Federal Reserve Lies, and Dr. Paul Craig, uh, that is Paul Craig Roberts on that. Epstein will talk about Thomas Piketty's thesis in his book, Capital. Uh, see you there. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Canamax Resources has commenced a 10,000-meter drill program on its flagship Bruner Gold Project in Nevada. This follows a successful 2013 field season, which included a 58-meter intercept of 5.2 grams per ton gold. NYSE market-listed Gold Resource Corporation just completed a $2 million strategic investment in Canamex, and NYSE-listed Hecla Mining Company also is a strategic investor. Canamex Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol CSQ and on the OTCQX under symbol CNMXF. 
Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. 